rest of the book is going to be about. When we come to verse 1, though, there is this um, statement, and, and the force of it in the original language, and we kind of get this somewhat in the English, when he says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken. It's almost like I think of uh, the, the herald of uh, earlier times in the United States or someone where they would read a public proclamation, they would say, hear ye, hear ye. This is that same sense. The prophet, after the first two chapters and the introductory thoughts, he says, this is a formal announcement. Hear this which God has to say. Wouldn't you think it's always significant when God speaks? (laughs) I know we, I don't know, you know, we think of God and uh, he's up there and we're down here and there's kind of a disconnect. But wouldn't you think any time that God speaks, it would warrant us paying attention? These words at the start of chapter 1 say, listen up. What I'm about to tell you is very important. God is about, about to make an announcement. And he says, so he says, hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel against the whole family. Um, I want you to get the sense that when Amos delivered this message the first time before it was written down, he has gone from his little uh, country living place in Tekoa and he has gone to Bethel, which is a religious and political center, and he has stood there in that place of worship and he has begun to speak In essence, thus saith the Lord, God has something to say here. And he begins to announce that the word that God has sent is against the children, his children of Israel, against the whole family. In verse 1, he reminds them of what he has done redemptively in the past. He says, the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt... God goes back to that great act that when you were slaves and you were a people in bondage and you were in oppression, remember that I with a strong and mighty hand, I came through Moses and I delivered you and I brought you to a land that flowed with milk and honey and I gave you power over the enemy that lived there and you came and you conquered that land. I have given you a place. I have redeemed you. I have given you a life that you could have never imagined, but this is what I have done for you. God reminds them, as he would remind us today, of what he has done redemptively in our lives. And then in verse 2, he says, saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. God says, I have a special relationship with you. I've called you to be my very own. You were not the most populous. You were not the most uh, powerful people. You were not the most wealthy people, the most prominent people. But God said, of all the families of the earth, I chose you, a little small nation. And what he said to their forefather Abraham is that I am choosing you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make your name great and I'm going to multiply your descendants and I'm going to make them a great people group and through you and your descendants I will bless all the families of the earth 
but of all the families of the earth, God said, I've chosen you. In verse 2, when he says, you only have I known. That is, um, that is the Hebrew word that speaks of an intimate relationship. It is the word that is used, I think, maybe the initial time in the book of Genesis when it says, and Adam knew Eve. It's that word. I have a special relationship with you. I have chosen you. You, you are a special people for me. And you know, maybe the people were listening that day in Bethel to Amos. The country boy dressed, I'm sure, in his clothes that he herded the sheep in. And he worked the farm in. And he's come to that place. And I'm sure the people there that came to worship were more sophisticated than him, dressed different than him, probably talked different than him. And it must have been quite a sight for them to see. And, and maybe... Even at this point, they're agreeing with him. They're, they're thinking, he said, this is the word that, that God redeemed you out of the land of Egypt. And they're saying, well, no, that's right. Yeah, I remember. You know, we know. We celebrate that in our history. And of all the families of the earth, I have known you. And, and I want to pause right there in the middle of two because I really believe in their minds that they're tracking with Amos right now. But there was something when he said, I've redeemed you out of Egypt and out of all the families of the earth, I've chosen or I've known you. I want you to get what was in their mind, I really believe. Their thought was, if God has done that for us and he's chosen us to be at a special place, then we'll always be right in the hand of God and God will always bless us and take care of us and he will keep any misfortune from happening to us. I want you to get the sense today that they thought because of what God had done and the position that they had that they would always have that and God would always bless them and take care of them and nothing could ever really happen to them because they were the special ones. God had redeemed them. That's not what the prophet says. What the prophet says in the next phrase, he says, therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. I think he lost the crowd again in Bethel that, that Saturday. Because of your, what God has done in the past, and because of your special privilege, therefore, and they're ready for it, God's going to punish you because your lives don't line up with his holy standards. They thought because of their privilege state before God that they were always protected. But God said because of your privilege state, there is a greater accountability and a greater responsibility before me and really what God is communicating because of what I have done and the state I have given you it would be against my very righteous character to turn a blind eye to the lives that you are living now, I think the lives that they were living I think when Amos comes on the scene and I, I've dated it at, at 762 I think the moral decline had happened for several decades 
among God's people. There was a slide. I don't think it was overnight. I want you to think of one other spiritual truth. And actually, it's Henry Blackaby that teaches us this in experiencing God. And you got to put this in your brain. When God speaks, it is his time for us to respond. When God spoke in 762 through Amos, that was their time. And sometimes we get this idea when God speaks that we can kind of choose when we're going to respond to that. But actually, when we don't respond in a positive way, we've already responded in disobedience. And we think, well, that's all right because God's a gracious God and we're going to have some time. And quite honestly, Israel did have some time. But that's not actually the point. If God wanted them to know this news in 760 B.C., he would have sent Amos in 760. He wanted them to know now. When God speaks, it is his time. And somehow we we rationalize in our brains that I can respond on my timetable. No, when God speaks, it is his timetable. That is his time. And what God said to his people was that because of what I have done in the past and the relationship that we have, I will punish you for your iniquities. I cannot turn a blind eye to it. In verses 3 through 6, Amos goes through a series of rhetorical questions. And what I mean by a rhetorical question is is it a question that he asks that has an assumed answer. We're going to eat lunch today, aren't we? Oh, yes, we're going to eat lunch today. You're not going to go, no, I don't think we're going to eat lunch today. No, we're going to eat lunch today. We're going to eat lunch today, aren't we? Yes, it has, an, it has an implied answer to the question. And he has a whole series of these. This is what I want you to get. Because we, we get this and it's Old Testament, it's, it's prophecy, and it's kind of poetic. And we go, I don't really understand the point that he is making. This is what Amos was doing. He was using the rhetorical questions to draw them in through a series of logical questions where they began to say, yes, yes, no, no, yes, yes, and then the punchline. You see, it is a series of rhetorical questions that have an implied answer, and it illustrates cause and effect in the natural realm. He wanted them to understand there is a connection between events that happen, and then at the end of that, he's going to apply it spiritually to say, well, if you've answered yes and yes and yes and yes to that, then this also must be true. But why have you responded the way that you have to that? He says in verse 3, can two walk together unless they are agreed Amos is saying, if you see two people walking down the road, if you, if you leave church today and there's two people walking along Highway 69 between here and Homer, you would say, they probably know each other. They're walking together. They've agreed to take that journey. Now their car may have broken down. I don't know what's happened. But he says, he would say in his day, and he's just a country boy. He's an outdoorsman, and he uses all these that are kind of from outdoor life. He says, if I see two people walking down a road when I'm working in the field, I have to assume they know each other and they've agreed to walk together. Can two walk together unless they are agreed? 
And actually the implied answer to this is no, they're not going to be walking together unless they are agreed. Now just follow. Because really he's setting them up. And they're going, no, that's right. Verse 4, will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? The country boy says, as I'm, as I'm tending the flocks, and I hear the roar of a lion, even though I cannot see that lion, I know what's about to happen. Now, I don't know that we know this. I had to do a little research. I'm not a, an expert on animals. But a lion will quietly stalk its prey. But the moment it pounces, or before it pounces, it will roar. And what that did is that paralyzed the prey in shock. <laughs> if you're walking around along the road, and all of a sudden, rawr, I was about to do it, but I know y'all don't deserve that. No, you don't go, oh, I'm going to start running. No, your initial reaction is to go, what? Oh, it's too late then. He's taking you. And Amos says, when I'm out there among the sheep and I hear the roar of a lion off in the distance, I know what's happened. He's not going to roar unless he's about to pounce. And I guarantee you, something just died out there in the wilderness. The lion has got his prey because he's not going to roar unless there is a prey. And they're going, that's right. He says, will a young lion cry out, out of his den if he has caught nothing? So the lion would then kill its prey and drag it to its den, and there would be young lions there. And, and this word for cry out is a specific word in the original language that would speak of a, the, the noise that a, a lion would make as it ate its prey. And he said, I can hear the roar of a lion, and I know it's about to pounce, and there's something dead. But when I also hear that other sound of the young lions in their dens, I know that they are eating their prey. I cannot see it. But I know it's happening. I, I know the effect. And so I know the cause. And they would have agreed with him. Verse 5, will a bird fall into a snare on the earth where there is no trap for it? Do birds fall out of the air and just die? No. The country boys, if you see a bird that takes a dive, some kind of snare has taken it down. You know that. And then he, he kind of doubles down on that. He says in the second part of verse 5, will a snare spring up from the earth if it has, it has caught nothing at all? And I don't know what these snares look like, but I watch all these survival shows, so I know what I could do if, you know. I'm telling Amy, no, it's possible that my flight could go down in the wilderness of Alaska. I'm going to need to know this to survive. I'm joking. She thinks I'm crazy. But anyhow, no. I don't know what this snare would have looked like, but I think they would have set snares and they would have heard them go off. And Amos would have said, country boy, I'm out there tending my flock and I hear, the, I hear that snare go off. I know something has tripped it. And most likely something has been caught. It doesn't just go off by itself. He says in verse 6, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people be afraid? Huh. There were probably other times the trumpet was blown. 
But if you're in town and all of a sudden a trumpet goes off, it was a signal in ancient time. The enemy is here. We've just discovered them. They're about to attack. So when you heard that trumpet, you're like freaking out. He said, if you hear the trumpet in the middle of the night or in the day as you're going about your activity, all of a sudden go off in your town, aren't you afraid? You're going, oh my, what's happening? They're here. We didn't even know it. All of these, or most of these, except for verse 3, where two can walk together unless they're agreed, speak about imminent danger in the natural world. Now, really, when you come to the end of verse 6, he kind of gets, he starts to <laughs> zero in on his point, and he says, if there is, a, is calamity in a city, will not the Lord have done it? If a city falls, won't you trace it back to the hand of God? Does anything happen that God is not sovereign over? All of these metaphors, illustrations of cause and effect, taken from everyday life, speak of imminent danger. He asked them in rhetorical questions to draw the people of Israel in to say, yes, that's right, that's, yes, I, yes, okay, I got, I, yes, that's right. All of the images have implied implications for Israel. Once he said it, and after he had made his point, they would have gone back and thought, oh, I see what you were doing there. They all have an implied implication for Israel. It's not about the, it's not about the physical realm. It's about the spiritual realm. What was Amos at least implying in all of his questions? When he says in verse 3, three can two walk together unless they are agreed? The implied implication for Israel, if you're not walking with God, you're not agreeing with him. The only way you can walk with him is that you agree with him and your lives don't, met, don't match up or not lined up with who God is. One of the themes throughout Amos is this roaring lion. He said it. In his opening statement in 1-2 when he said, the, the Lord roars from Zion. The implied implication from verse 4, if, his, if God is screaming out a message right now as a lion roars in the wilderness, don't you know that God is about to pounce? The time is now. When when you hear the noise, you know the time is now. And God is roaring like a lion. There is a prey. And God has set a snare. And when you hear the snare go off, you know judgment has come. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, 
which is another metaphor that speaks of the prophet standing to make an announcement for God. You know that the enemy is at hand and there is imminent danger. The time to respond is now. And the implied implication is that when you hear a trumpet and you fear, why is it that when God makes an announcement, you do not fear? You see, the implied implication is for the people that were sitting there in Bethel, and as he's beginning to say these things, that God is bringing his judgment to them, they are processing in their brains how they're going to receive that message. Some of them sit there, stood there and said, well, this boy's a quack. Good grief. Look at that old country boy coming up in here talking about all this judgment and stuff. That boy's crazy. Maybe they thought, This will shock you. He's not really speaking to me, but I know who he is speaking to. Somehow they're sitting there and they're processing in their brain the message that's coming, but they're not responding in the way that they ought to when they have agreed with all of the rhetorical questions that have gone before this. Maybe they dismissed the message. Maybe they ignored the message. Maybe they rationalized in their brain that the message was not for them. And you come to verse 7 and 8, the spiritual application. And this this is the point. This is what Amos is setting up all before this as he's drawn them in. He says, surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. It's one of those cause and effect connections. God's, Amos says, we have to understand that when God is about to act, He's going to reveal it to a messenger, and a messenger is going to make the message known without a shadow of a doubt. God doesn't do anything unless he reveals his secrets of what he's about to do to his prophets. You know why God does that? Because God is gracious and merciful, and he wants to give us a window to respond. There's a lot of gloom and doom in the book of Amos. There's a couple verses, (laughs) as I've read the nine chapters several times, where there's just a glimmer of hope for some, a remnant, that God is going to protect. But who would God protect? He's going to protect those that when they heard the lion roar, when they heard God speak, they responded in repentance of life. And to say, God, in agreement with God, how can two walk together unless they are agreed? What is confession of sin? A confession of sin is agreeing with God about his assessment of our lives and our actions. The only hope we have 
is when God speaks that we respond in repentance. But out of his grace and mercy, God always communicates before he acts. In verse 8, a lion has roared. Who will not fear? Why is it when the message is proclaimed that you either dismiss it, ignore it, or rationalize it instead of saying, no, I have to respond. It's my only hope to fall upon the mercy and grace of God. Instead of using a metaphor in eight, he goes straight to the point. The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Amos said, I was minding my own business. I was tending the flocks. I was tending the fruit trees that I had. And God spoke to me and he told me what he was going to do to Israel. And he said, I'm going to send you to go and proclaim the message. Amos is saying, what choice did I have? And and here's, here's the completion of the whole thought of these eight verses. It is the question, why else would Amos be there saying these things? I understand he could be a crazy man. He could hate the Israelites. But Amos is, they try to throw him under the bus later and saying, you need to go back to your little group of prophets in that community that feeds you bread. And he said, my daddy wasn't a prophet and I'm not a prophet. I was tending my flocks and my fig trees and God told me to come and tell you this. And he asked the question, cause and effect, why else would I be here saying these things unless God is about to take care of business? What? This is not what I do. I, 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 all this is going to create for me is grief. I had a nice little life where I lived. It was simple. I'm a country boy. Country boys just like simple lives, you know. And now I'm all up here in your business. Why else would I be doing this? Think about it, people. Think about it. Take it seriously. Amos 3, 1 through 8. So what does God say to us today? What does this say to us? What does God have to say? Well, if you just follow the train of thought, he would say to us, and we're going to talk about the church in America today, but it really gets more personal than that. It comes down to Huntington Baptist Church, and it comes down to me because I represent this church. I, I want you to know that the church in America is not in a good place. The vast majority of churches are declining A few of them are plateaued, 
and even a small percentage of them are growing, but quite honestly, the majority of those who are growing are simply taking up the members of the churches that are dying. I'm just telling you what the statistics tell us and what we actually know is going on in America, in the church, in a supposed Christian nation. And what does God say to the church where we are? Well, I think he says, I've redeemed you out of bondage. God wants us to know as he speaks this word to us, he said, I want you to know what I've done for you in the past. If you're a child of God and you've been redeemed, God would say to you, my son died for your sins. You had no hope. You were doomed for a devil's hell and a life probably of destruction. Unless you could maybe try to get your stuff together for a little while. God said, that's what I did for you. And what he says is, I have chosen you among all the people. I think Byron preached this about a month ago, but do you know the percentage of people in Christian Huntington, Texas that are in church today? I don't either, but our guess, we talked about this as a staff, we would guess maybe about 20%, maybe smaller than that. Christian Huntington, Texas. I don't know, there's about 25 churches in Huntington. But for every one of you, there's four people that aren't in church today in Huntington, Texas. And we're a Christian community. God would remind us today of what he has done for us in the past, and he also reminds us that we have a special relationship with him. He has chosen us to be his children, as he says to John, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Hmm. But if we were just taking the sequence of what Amos says, then in verse 2, God would say is because I've redeemed you. I've saved you. I've taken you out of so much and I've covered your sin for eternity. Because I've called you to be my own children. Because of that great privilege, there's a great responsibility. And I want you to know that I can't overlook your sin. No, you're too important to me. You're, you're at the very heart of the mission of what I'm doing to redeem the rest of the world. If you don't get it right, then God said it's not going to be right. If your, li- if your lives don't line up, then we're in trouble because you are the plan, church, that I'm going to use to redeem the world through Jesus. And I think just like the people in Amos' day when we come to the middle of Verse 2, and he says, therefore, we're kind of shocked when he says, therefore, because I've redeemed you and I've called you to be my own, because of that great privilege, God says, I can't overlook your sin. There's too much at stake here. And when you're out of step, I'm going to have to do something about it. We have to look honestly at our lives to say our lives do not line up with God. If we were just being 
honest. We have fit God into a comfortable space in our lives that allows us to still and be in charge and kind of just take God for how much we want of Him. But not all of Him and not all of us just part way. We take God into our lives on our own terms. We live a faith that is convenient. That means when it is what I want to do, then I'll do that. And in our entitlement mentality as the redeemed and the called of God, we expect God then to bless our lives. This is what I'm going to do. God, I want you to come alongside of me and bless me and take care of me and be there for me. Pretty much running my own life. But God, I, I'll turn to you when it fits into my life. But if we were to examine our lives, there are other priorities that push out God. We have decided on our level of commitment that is comfortable to us and does not upset anything in our lives that we want to live. We have settled in the spiritual realm. If we were just being real honest. And what? Think about the cause and effect. If that is the case, then what would we expect God to do? If we were being honest, we'd have to say a righteous God will have to respond to that. He can't just let that go. He will have to act. There will have to be consequences. God has too much at stake. The redemption of the world as we proclaim that message and we surrender our lives, all of our lives, for that, for God to do whatever He would choose to do. Think about it with me. Wouldn't we expect God to do that? If our lives were not spiritually where they ought to be and we'd only gone part way with God, even though in our brains we would somehow think, well, God's redeemed me. God's chosen me. He's going to take me to heaven when I die. What's wrong with me just living my life as I choose it? It's for the very reason he redeemed us. No, if he has done that for us, then what should our lives be for him? How can we go part way? Let me ask you this question. So why 
is our emphasis in 2018 on spiritual renewal. Why, why would God lay that on your pastor's heart? You know what would be more comfortable, convenient, and simpler for your pastor? Just like for Amos, is just keep doing my business as I've always done business and not rock the boat. We're happy. We're content. Let's just keep loving each other. And we've all settled on a level of commitment that we're comfortable with. And as long as we stay within those parameters, it's all going to be good. Why would God lay this on my heart unless he would say the great call? I don't know if this helps you or hurts you. I don't think it's just our church. I think it's by and large the church in America. But I've told you this before. I'm not responsible for the church in America. I'm responsible for Huntington First Baptist Church. God placed me here to be your spiritual shepherd. And when he says to me, there has to be a call for spiritual renewal, what must the conclusion be? (laughs) We are in need of spiritual renewal. And let me tell you the other significance. When God speaks, it is his time. If you're really hard-headed like me, you can weather this series of sermons through Amos. You can hunker down. Oh, you'll survive. But what is the spiritual consequence of that? There are always consequences. Remember? Before God acts, he speaks and he makes it very clear to not respond to what God has to say has serious consequences. The call has been for us to get real and to get right. Yes, it is the call, I believe, for the church in America. I believe it's the call for Huntington First Baptist Church. But this morning, we have to get it down to the individual basis. It's the call for each one of our lives. And this is all I know. In fact, I'm going to ask you to stand. Stand. Then you'll think I'm about to finish my sermon. All I know is that when God speaks to you, you have a choice. I have a choice. 
I will either respond in obedience to what he has to say. And I don't know how God is speaking to you. I don't know what the issues of your life, I don't know what God through his Holy Spirit is saying to you through his word of convicting you of where your life is not in alignment with God. But we have a choice when he speaks to either respond in obedience, repentance and obedience, Or to somehow, I think even for the people in Amos' day, to dismiss it because the pastor's on a tear, he's a little bit crazy, you know, all this is, who knows what's going on in Brother Darrell's mind, it's hard to figure out. We can dismiss it, we can ignore it, or somehow we can rationalize it that he's really not speaking to me, but I am. There is a call for us to be honest before God. It's all I know. And for us, whatever he convicts us of, to get right. It's the only path forward. The other path is a dangerous path because there is imminent danger there. To continue down that road, of departing from God. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, our music team's going to lead us. Uh, you respond as God leads you today. Lord, I need you.